Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 125 of the Hollywood in Toto podcast, The Right Take on Entertainment. This week we're talking with Mike Barron. He's among the most prolific writers I've known, pinging from page-turning novels one day to gripping comic book titles the next. He's going to share an insider's peek at the current comic book industry, sneak preview, it's ugly, and also so much more about his craft. Stay tuned. Wanted to start this week's show with an apology and an explanation, too. We didn't have a headcast last week. I've been having some major technical issues with the technology behind the show. I have to say I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I think I've spent so much time with the folks at HP Tech that my wife is probably thinking I'm having an affair. Now, the issues for now are fixed, but that's why the show went dark last week. And I'm again, I'm sorry. I also want to apologize for the audio on segments of this particular podcast, and maybe even next week as well. It's a little rough around the edges. It's perfectly fine. You can hear every word being spoken, but it isn't up to the show's usual standards. So just bear with us. It's going to last another week or so, and then things will get back to normal. Um, the sound, again, is fine, but uh, I just want to kind of deliver the best I possibly can. And I actually recorded last week's episode, but there were some issues with it. It just didn't sound good. The level was a bit off, and I didn't want to release it without having a, a good enough sound quality to it. So, again, I think we've got the, I- the things kinked. The kinks ironed out, as they say. wish I could speak. And uh, we'll be moving forward week after week from here on in. I appreciate your patience. And, you know, it's funny. The show's audience is growing, even though I had an off week last week. So I really appreciate your time, your patience. And if you've been spreading the word about the show, I appreciate that all the more. But let's get to a quick Hollywood update. Did you know that President Trump could get charged with a hate speech crime? Well, so says Joy Behar in her latest unhinged rant. Now, I don't know if everyone knows this, but I do a weekly podcast with Michael Brown. It's part of his show, Michael Brown Unplugged. Every Friday, we have a Hollywood in Toto segment, and he's very kind to let me brand it with my website and my podcast name. Now, we have a lot of laughs, talk about Hollywood, some of the things that people are saying, a little bit of movie reviewing as well, but we also poke fun at The View. It's almost every week. Sometimes we take a week off, but generally speaking, if I'm talking to Michael Brown about Hollywood, we're talking The View. And uh, why do we make fun of The View? Well, to paraphrase a very old commercial starring John Hausman, they've earned it. Now, Michael and I didn't get a chance to mock this particular View commentary, so I thought we'd do it here. The conversation in question turned to Trump's send them back tweet. And I have to say, it might be the worst tweet of his presidency. It's hard to spin. I get the context. I know other people on the left have said worse, worse things, but I have to call it like I see it. It's a tough, tough tweet. I wish he didn't do it. Now, in that discussion, Joy Behar argued that the ACLU should charge President Trump with hate speech for that crime. It's dumb. It hurts. You know, our culture is more divided and angrier than ever. Maybe it's a social media thing. Maybe it's the real deal. I think it's sort of a a merge between the two. But can't we all come together, join hands, and tell Joy that that isn't the way America works? Please? 
This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwans.com backslash yum for details. Now here's the tweet of the week. This week's winner is Stephen Colbert, the hard, hard left host of The Late Show. He's kind of slipping these days. His zest for all things anti-Trump is just reducing what he does on screen with The Late Show to a level that would make a grade schooler blush. If he told some of the jokes, if my kid told some of the jokes that Stephen Colbert tells on that show, on CBS, a major network, I'd say, hey, son, why don't you try again? I don't think you got that one workshopped out. Case in point, this attempt at humor by Colbert on the Twitter. You can now buy Trump 2020 branded straws for $15 a pack, which is a great way to let people know you suck. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. This week, I'm proud to open up the hitcast to another right-leaning artist. Colin Cunningham fell for music hard at a crazy early age. He spent much of his life singing and playing and touring. And while the big break hasn't happened for him yet, it's not slowing him down at all. What is? Well, embracing a right-of-center mindset. You know that drill. Colin shares his musical journey in the latest hit cast, Artist Spotlight. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Colin, thanks for joining the show. Uh, I want to maybe start with telling us a little bit about your backstory, how you became a musician and some of the uh, some of your early touring days. I, I, I'm always curious how people make that leap because it's not exactly a typical job. You know, you want to be a lawyer, a doctor or something like that. But being a comedian or musician always seems really challenging. So what happened there? Well, it kind of started for me right out of the womb. Um, just a quick backstory. My, yeah. my father was an immigrant from England. He came over in the 1970s, and my mother was born, um, I believe, in Massachusetts. And they met in Connecticut. And uh, right away in the cradle, they, they would sing to me, huh. um, you know, just lullabies and stuff like that. My dad would play and sing uh, kind of the more traditional English folk songs and kind of like the, the folk rock revival of uh, groups like Steel Eye Span. Um, and I grew up with it. I grew up with my parents singing to me. So a couple years down the road, I, I'm into schools now, and the public school in our town wasn't the best. They had a leaking roof, uh, a couple of other health issues. So they moved me to a private school, and the closest private school was a Catholic school. We were really lucky at the time that we could afford it. And uh, I signed up to, do, uh, to, to sing in the children's choir in third grade. And uh, for the next five or six years, I did the children's choir. And then, uh, you know, my voice changed eventually, and it wasn't cool. I got picked on for singing in the choir, so I stopped in eighth grade. But my senior year in high school, um, you know, I, I had kind of lost my way a little bit as a student and uh, changed schools, went back to a public school, uh, moved in with my grandmother full-time, who was ill. And uh, I was able to take a light course schedule because I had, you know, gotten all these credits saved up at Catholic school. 
um, and I was able to take two and a half full credits worth of chorus my senior year. So I got right back into singing. And then one day in class, I got tapped on the shoulder by a kid, a friend of mine named Phil. And he says, uh, so you're the new kid, right? And you're in the chorus. And I said, yeah. He says, do you want to try out for a band? <laughs> and so from then on, about the age of 18 till basically today, uh, I've been involved in playing rock and roll music, writing music uh, to some form or another. As for touring, um, you know, I, I kind of, I had a few bands uh, through high, through the end of high school and then the first couple of years, I guess, what would have been college. I didn't go to college right away. I just, you know, I wanted to work and experience life a little bit. Pretty smart. Uh, yeah. And uh, I had a couple friends from around the country that it, I'd met over the years. And uh, we would take these little road trips up around New England. Uh, my friend James and I drive up into Massachusetts or up into Vermont or something like that on these road trips. And I came back from one to a voicemail message from uh, a kid named Zach. And he says, your brother, it was just like what had happened in high school. Your brother says you're a really good singer. And uh, we were wondering if you wanted to try out for a band. And uh, that band ended up becoming These Green Eyes. And years later, you know, we had done 46 U.S. states, a whole bunch of uh, full U.S. tours, uh, and played with a lot of bands that we kind of idolized growing up. As for getting into touring, you know, I, traveling was a big part of growing up for me. I had some family in Tennessee, and we lived in Connecticut, so my parents would always, we'd do these road trips in the summer, drive, you know, take the scenic route to the Blue Ridge Mountains or uh, the Shenandoah Valley or something like that, and stop at Civil War sites. And so traveling was kind of natural to me. I had already been to a lot of the places we ended up touring to, uh, at least at first, uh, just mm -hmm. on road trips with my parents. Yeah. Now, Politically speaking, I didn't really kind of become politically aware, and I kind of drifted to the right after the 9-11 attacks. It sounds like you also were sort of left of center initially, and then you kind of shifted right. Was there any specific um, um, impulse behind that, or was it sort of a, a gradual evolution? What, what, what did that journey look like? Wow. Well, I can remember, I can remember all the way back to like Clinton versus Dole, and actually even before that, um, was it? Uh, yeah, Bush versus Clinton. I remember that being like the first election that we talked about in grade school. I must have been in like fifth or sixth grade. We had a class election, like who's who's going to win the election? You know that type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, like me, uh, or I'm sorry, like you, 9/11 uh, was a big turning point. It woke me up, but it actually pushed me further to the left. Um, Interesting. I looked at yeah, I looked at U.S. intervention in all these other countries as kind of you know the root cause of the conflict and. Gradually, you know, that, that was kind of my operating mind, mind frame for a while. I, I had that kind of guilt for American imperialism that seems to be so rampant today. And I had it 20 years ago. Um, so I would see things like, you know, the, uh, uh, that, the uh, Southeast Asian earthquake and tsunami, that type of thing. And I'd, I'd look at the kind of the slow re disaster relief response to that, those types of incidents, and I'd kind of get even angrier about our place in the world. So I had kind of a lot of kind of, I guess, I, I guess the word is shame or guilt um, for America's actions around the world. And I'll tell you what, what started to wake me up was the Occupy protests. Also touring. I should, I should make that clear. You know, you have this, you have this mindset when you grow up in a, in a bubble and everybody grows up in a bubble to some degree. Um, you know, you, you, you have your immediate family and your immediate friends in your neighborhood, and those things kind of shelter you from what the world's like outside, regardless of your background or your race or your culture. Um, 
but when you get out of that bubble, like we were able to and tour the country, you know, it's not all exactly like your hometown it's mm-hmm. or your state. So, you know, you, you, you think it's going to be playing, you know, swanky bars and, and clubs and marquee hotspots in New York and Los Angeles, but then you get out and you play those places and nobody cares. They're all, you know, they're all in there for the first song and then they're all out in the, in the parking lot smoking cigarettes and, and flirting the rest of the <laughs> show. Um, but then you go to like Pella, Iowa, you know, some, or, or Lamoni, Iowa, or, or any of the, you know, those are the two that immediately spring to mind or uh, Pompano Beach, Florida, these places that aren't uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, these places that are not like the big city places and bands don't go there or they don't go there very often. So you set foot in those places and people have listened to your music before you came because it's a big deal. And those kids come back and they tell their friends and that kind of woke me up because this is the rural part of the country or like the, the, you know, the not as sophisticated part of the country as I've been led to believe, you know, by John Stewart or whoever, you know, back in those days. And it kind of woke me up and I said, you know, these people are actually a lot nicer than I, I kind of assumed they'd be. I thought they'd be kind of one way and they weren't. And that was consistent over the years on tours. You know, we'd go to the big cities and it was a struggle to get people to even, you know, pay you more than a second's glance. And you'd go to these other places and people would op- welcome you in with open arms. I mean, I, I remember we played a, a church, a church hall basement in uh, rural Let's see, where was it? Kansas City. So it was about three and a half hours, maybe south and east of Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the pastor greeted us there with a, with a meal before the doors opened. And he said, you know, I checked out your music beforehand and it's really good. And the kids are excited. And it was just like they let us play on their on their little altar area huh. in, in the church. Yeah, yeah. And it was just, it was a, an amazing experience. And like seeing that time and time again over the years started to break down the walls. And then we get to Occupy. So I'm still clinging to some of the, the, the very left of center ideas. I get to Occupy. I've spent all these years in a band touring. And I was actually in Zuccotti Park. Um, and they had all of this gear kind of in rented trucks that they were parking in one place for a little while and then moving and then parking somewhere else. The people had been donating stuff, you know, food and clothes, equipment. And uh, a couple of the people that were there were showing me around and they had this truck. I look in the back and it's just a disaster. Uh, so I just hopped in and I started organizing it, you know, and I kind of asked a couple of people for help and we pulled everything out of the truck and went through each box and found out what was in it and started to organize it in the truck just independently. Um, and then I'm like, their commissar squad or whatever came up and started giving us a hard time about it. Well, you know, Mike check, Mike check. We didn't, we didn't consult the people's, you know, uh, the people's council on this. And it was just a job that needed to be done. And, you know, it was, it was to streamline what they were trying to do. And I remember getting pushback to that. And that was kind of an eye opener. Um, Interesting. And I like the fact that sort of your worldview evolved as you were being exposed to the world, really. I mean, and you were open enough to kind of accept the new information and kind of processes it. I I want to talk about your most recent uh, EP, Anthem. But before I do, I think it's a better segue just to talk about when you went to the right. We kind of had an email exchange prior to this. Did that impact your music, how people responded to you, maybe fellow musicians, anything along those lines? Um, I actually had a few musicians, because um, this all happens, I think a lot of people have experienced this, it, it happened on social media, 
because that's how you're primarily staying in touch with a lot of people these days. So, uh-huh. you know, I'd, I'd give pushback on something on, on Facebook, you know, about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or, you know, something the media was reporting. And it would just start these dozens and dozens and dozens of responses, you know, these, these firestorms of people getting mad at me. And um, at first it was kind of entertaining. Like, <laughs> but then it, it got like really personal. Um, with people accusing me of racism or sexism or all these other isms um, to a point where it was obvious and they just stopped meaning anything. But I, I got some, some people um, reached out to me through private messages, some musicians that I know and respect saying things like, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. Like I kind of feel the same way, but like, you should be careful. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you should be careful expressing your opinion. I, I hate the I, fact that we have to even say that, but uh, it's, it's important to kind of reiterate that. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, it's like Mao's China with the struggle sessions where, mm-hmm. you know, Mao's campaign to obliterate the four olds, you know, and uh, anybody that, that didn't quite go along with what the party wanted, the idea of a struggle session was to go and shame that person and scream abuse at them and drive them to, to leave the public square and yeah. commit suicide. Basically. Well, that could never happen here, thank goodness, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Never gotcha. Yeah. Well, um, well, before we let you go, I obviously want to talk about Anthem. I want to talk about your current music. Uh, for people, um, There's going to be links at uh, hollywoodintoto.com to where people can learn more about you and your music. But uh, tell us more about it. I mean, how would you describe it? How is it maybe kind of a, um, a summation of your career up until this point? Would kind of give us a sneak peek. Sure. Um, Anthem is, is kind of a continuation of how I've always tried to write songs, going back to the, the Celtic and English folk music my dad listened to. Um, those, those songs all had stories and, and you know, meaning behind them. Uh, and so for Anthem, you know, the whole environment around the 2015-16 election season was, was very crazy. And I wanted to write again. Um, it had it'd been a few years since I had written anything. And I wanted to write about what was happening. But my experience on social media, trying to kind of push back or participate and give, give a different opinion, um, kind of led me to, to realize if I try to write something that's touching on these issues with while endorsing a side, it's, it's going to drive more people away on either side. So what I tried to do is I tried to like write lyrics touching on the various aspects of what was going on without endorsing anything to leave room for people to kind of put themselves into the situation as they listen to it. And that's kind of how we've always tried to write like on our previous releases. That's also the case. Um, so with Anthem, you know, the first song starts and it's all about this kind of street awareness and activism and these kind of lost people looking for meaning um, out in the streets. And it goes to the next song, which is kind of about the social media isolation of the day, which is what I was dealing with. And the third song, Anthem, the title track is definitely a call to revolution. But if you listen to it, I mean, there's references to the wall and there's references to even some socialist uh socialist leader in Mexico back in the day, Emiliano Zapata. So I, I tried to bring in elements from the left and the right in everything I wrote. And then the last two songs kind of close it out. Um, New Tomorrow is kind of a, a, an oath to, to build a better tomorrow. And then Ghosts is the, you know, years later down the road, thinking about this crazy activity that we've all gone through and the friends we've lost along the way. Interesting. You know, yeah. I speak to a lot of different conservative artists, and often their impulse is 
to be less political, to not force their ideology down the, the you know whoever's listening or watching their projects. So I, I applaud that. And I also think it often creates better art because if you're leaving things up for interpretation, it's more exploratory. It's less, hey, here's a lecture. Hope you like it. So uh, I appreciate that. But uh, very hey, much, very much a postmodern approach to songwriting. Yeah, let people make their own meaning. The new punk is actually stepping back and just creating art, and letting people interpret. But <laughs> such as my, my joke <laughs> has been for a while that the new punk movement is going to be, you know, uh, Wall Street brokers and business writing <laughs> songs about the economy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Trickle down economics. Well, right. Colin, I, I really appreciate you not giving up on your work. It sounds like music is a real passion, and uh, keep at it. People will connect with it. Obviously, they have already, and hopefully, more will do so. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Again, the links to a lot of Colin's work will be on hollywoodintoto.com and uh, maybe in a year or two we can reconnect and see what's happening with the career sounds great thank you very much don't touch that dial you're listening to my daddy's podcast author mike barron is so good at pitching his different projects you wish he'd do the same for every other storyteller mike does a bit of that in their upcoming conversation and you'll love it just wait Mike is a veteran comic book writer, best known for creating independent titles like Nexus and The Badger. He's also written for a crush of existing titles over the years. More recently, he unlocked the key to writing novels, something I haven't done yet. And that means a flood of Mike's stories are going to be coming our way very soon. Mike also happens to be a very smart, passionate conservative. But a guy who doesn't put his politics directly into his story. It's all about entertaining us, grabbing us by the scruff of the neck, that counts most of all. We need more folks like him. Here's my overdue conversation with a very talented fellow, Mike Barron. Well, Mike, you're a comic book veteran, and I just want to kind of get your quick take. We can't go, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, but where does the comic book industry stand now? You hear stories about the, the social justice warriors. There are independent comics companies kind of all over. Some are thriving. It's been that way for a while, but I, I just kind of get your your snapshot because you, you know this industry better than most people. What's your general take and are, are there sort of signs of optimism we can cling to as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, the comic industry is in a state of chaos right now uh, and parts of it are in free fall. And uh, this is due to technology and to a large extent because of the internet has changed so many things. Uh, the readership is down, and there are many reasons for this. And one of the biggest reasons is the rise of video games. Uh, because, frankly, uh, a good video game gives you much more bang for your buck than a $5 comic. And I say that because most comics aren't very entertaining. I know because I look at them from time to time, and, and I've shown you what I've seen. Mm -hmm. uh, which, which brings us to, to another problem, which is that Marvel and DC uh, have forgotten that their first duty is to entertain and they've turned the books over to a number of social justice warriors who use the books to uh, push a social platform, which may or may be worthwhile. But there's a way to do that and entertain, too. Uh, but most of these writers strike me as rather uh, young and unseasoned, and they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to grab the reader by the throat, which is uh, my goal in everything I write. You know, it, it seems like given the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DC Comics movies, which have been kind of hit or miss, that putting technology aside, this would be a golden age, at least for interest. At least people are, are you know, they're talking about these characters, the history, how they relate from the comic books to the movies. Uh, well, is, 
it seems like they're, they're missing a, an amazing opportunity. Uh, any, any additional thoughts on that? Or is it just everything else is so powerful working against it? It doesn't matter what MCU movies make. Well, no, it's fumble after fumble, and the recent offerings from the big two have turned off a lot of readers. I see it on Facebook every day. Well, I wanted to be entertained, but then I got this message in my face, uh, so I'm moving on. And, and you know, just say the success of the movies uh, should increase uh, comic sales, but they haven't. And we've been talking about this for 30 years, that they should sell comics in movie lobbies, but it hasn't happened because... You've got all these people fighting over their turf, and you got to agree to this, that, and the other thing, and it just hasn't happened, uh, and it would seem to be a logical move. That's uh, <laughs> Logical hardly begins to describe it. That seems like a slam dunk, so it's yeah. pathetic that it hasn't happened. Uh, I, I want to kind of dial back on your career a little bit about you co-created Nexus years ago, and you've been you know picking up awards for it. It has continued. I, I'm kind of curious, when you first created that character, can you go back to what you were you were hoping to achieve and, and how and how the title all through the years have kind of kept to that spirit? Well, yes, as I've said before, my goal is always to grab the reader by the throat. And when I considered creating this character, I thought, what would make a compelling series? And I thought, well, if he killed somebody every, every time he showed up, that would make a compelling series. And that's no surprise to anyone because we have shows like Murder, She Wrote and Scandal and Divorce, shows that that show their promise in the title. They're going to give you drama. Drama is conflict. Uh, so I created a character who had his own inbuilt conflict, uh, and it's this, that he's a reluctant murderer. Uh, no, excuse me. He's a reluctant assassin of mass murderers, and he was made so by an insane alien who chose Nexus out of all the humans he knew to be the conscious of the human race. And because the alien is insane, uh, uh, the powers and the uh, uh, the demands are, are don't make sense at times. Mm-hmm. But, and, and this is one of Nexus's dilemmas, uh, trying to make sense of, of, of the demands that the Merc puts to him. Uh, and the, the demands come in the form of dreams. Nexus dreams of mass murderers. Uh, the dreams are, are exhausting and potentially lethal. And when he wakes up, he knows that he has to track that mass murderer down and kill him, or the dreams will recur and they'll become more and more intense until they finally kill him. Gotcha. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I like about talking to you is the way you, you kind of frame and pitch stories. It, it feels like I'm in an elevator and someone has like 30 to 40 seconds to kind of encapsulate a story. And you're, you're, <laughs> it's part of your magic as you do it so well. I was kind of curious, when, when you were growing up, when you were a young kid, I'm sure you are. I'm going to guess you're reading comic books in some some way, in fashion or form. What titles kind of grabbed you, and and what was it about those particular heroes that really kind of stuck with you? Because I, I mean, I remember what what I loved as a kid, and I, I didn't pursue a career in comics. And you have what, what's what do you remember the most about those years? Well, the first comic that really grabbed me was Uncle Scrooge by Carl Barks. Carl Barks was a genius, and they gave him carte blanche to write and illustrate his own stories. And he was just an instinctive storytelling teller. And anybody who reads one of his Uncle Scrooge or Donald Duck comic books knows what I mean. Those characters are alive. They're sympathetic. You care about them. Nobody wrote Donald Duck better than Carl Barks. So Donald Duck is a fully fleshed out duck. Mm -hmm. I'd say he's a human being, really. But he's every duck. Uh, But you can empathize with him. He gets mad, sure, but he's also got compassion. He's got honor. He's got dignity. He 
he fulfills his duty like the time Donald was a mailman. He's delivering mail all over the West on the edge of these cliffs and stuff. Uh, and he's an admirable character. And Uncle Scrooge is an admirable character, too. Uh, and that was the first comic that got me excited. It wasn't until I got to university that some friends of mine showed me Steranko and uh, Neil Adams comics. And when I saw that art, I was just knocked out. Hmm. It was the art that grabbed me there. You talk about instinctive storytellers. I think that's the word, the phrase you used. Yeah. Do you think that is is that a gift? Is it a a muscle you could build up? I, I was kind of. I mean, I think there are so many people who would love to write the great American novel, and for a variety of reasons, can't. I, I guess I could throw throw my name in that hopper. Do Do you think that you sort of just from the from the get go had that that gift, and you've been able to kind of nurture it, or do you think it's something that you could build up and learn and kind of craft along the way? Well, yes and no, and both. Uh, <laughs> in, in, this, in this sense is that I always had confidence that I could write and entertain other people ever since I was in high school. Uh, and my first job out of college was smoking dope for the government. I, I answered and had the Boston Phoenix, and I lived on a hospital uh, uh, dorm for a month, and I smoked dope every day, and I took tests. It was just like college. <laughs> when I got out of there, I wrote that up for the Boston Phoenix, and that's how I broke into journalism. Uh-huh. And I worked for newspapers for 10 years. I worked all over Boston. I worked for Boston Globe, but mostly I wrote for the Boston Phoenix, where I was an editor. Uh, and that helped because it taught me uh, the principles of journalism. But the whole time, always, I only wanted to write fiction. I only wanted to tell my stories and get paid for them. And I was always writing. Uh, and I could write comic books from the get-go. And one of the reasons is that I would just draw the page out, and I'd start with the first panel, and I'd think, well, what makes for a compelling scene? And then I'd write that scene, and then I'd say, well, what happens next? And that's the essential question in all fiction. What happens next? And the reader has to care. Well, I care passionately, so I tiptoed forward one panel at a time, trying to make each panel an extension of the past and yet a surprise. Uh, Because for me, the ideal ending of of any great story comes as both a complete surprise and then, on reflection, perfectly natural and obvious. Uh, And that taught me pacing. It also taught me uh, how much weight each page could bear Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of visuals and words. Uh, But it took me 30 years to learn how to to write a novel uh, and that's because I'm a slow learner. But then one day I got it. And and now uh, I'm very confident about my writing ability. And, and that's a good thing because, uh, you know, for years and years I look back on my prose. And this is true of any professional writer. And they look at it and they say, oh, I hate this. Oh, this is no good. How, how can I submit this? And I suffered from that for 30 years too. But I don't anymore because I'm pretty confident in my abilities. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something that's interesting. I, a lot of times I'll go to – I mean I'm a film critic so I see a lot of films – I go to the movies and often the screenplay will have a twist, a turn, a surprise. And more often than not, it makes not a lick of sense, but it seems cool on the surface. Like in the moment, you're like, wow, that really changed everything. But it's the organic nature of those twists and turns that really that really do matter. Um, Well, given the fact that it took a while to kind of figure out the novel writing aspect of your career, do you feel like you've got dozens of stories that are waiting to spill out? Do you kind of want to maybe spend more time writing novels and comic books, or where do you kind of shake out as far as your artistic choices now? Well, 
I'm writing both full time, but right now I've got a green light on novels, uh, and it's very difficult to get any comics published because I'm pushing my own ideas, mm. my own programs, and and even though I believe that myself beggars the offerings from the big two, uh, people have never heard of me. I don't have that big a following to raise funds. So we're trying to raise funds on Indiegogo for Offworlder, as you know. Uh, but because I've had some success with novels and now people are asking me to write for them, uh, I've written a, a Destroyer novel, by the way. It hasn't been published yet, but uh, Devin Murphy, who's the son of Warren Murphy, loved it. When it comes out, it'll make your head explode. I might <laughs> send you the manuscript because you'll laugh your ass off. When I started reading the Destroyer novels to prepare, I realized that everyone was a satire on leftist thought. So I said, Devin, how far do you want me to go? I said, go as far as you want. So I went all the way. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, you know, uh, I was kind of curious, when readers reach out to you, and of course, you know, in our digital age, it's impossible to avoid audiences for better or worse. What do they say about your work? Is there Are there sort of recurring uh, appreciations about what you do? Or even, I don't know, just kind of curious what, what kind of feedback you get as a writer. Well, the most gratifying feedback uh, are the reviews, of course, and mm -hmm. there are dozens, if not hundreds, up on Amazon for my books, including 25 reviews of the original publication of Biker by Liberty Island, and the reviews that go into great depth. I mean, there are some long reviews there, but, but they all say that I have the gift of grabbing the reader by the throat, mm -hmm. that I write compelling stuff that's impossible to put down, and that's my goal. Gotcha. Uh, one of the things you've done quite a bit, and we'll, we'll find it, <clears throat> excuse me, more in the next few weeks is the Josh Pratt stories. The biker is the initial one, but more stories are coming by the end of the year. Uh, great character, born again Christian turned private detective. I, I get why there's an attraction there. I'm kind of curious. Uh, talk about that character, what it, what he means to you and, and why, obviously you have a lot of affection for him. And, you know, he's, he's, He's got some rough edges, to be sure. Just maybe in your own words, tell us a little about him. Well, uh, Josh Pratt was inspired by my love of John D. McDonald and his Travis McGee stories in particular. That's mm -hmm. when I was a youngster. Those were the stories that grabbed me by the throat. And mm -hmm. I, I still think John D. McDonald is one of the greatest pulp writers who ever lived. And he was able to put his finger on the pulse of evil like nobody else. And I, I decided I wanted a character like that. And God knows there are dozens, if not hundreds, of characters like that in, in literature, like uh, Philip Marlowe, uh, uh, the, jeez, uh, I'm trying to think, the, uh, Tom Cruise did a movie about Oh, Jack Reacher. Guy, the Jack Reacher character. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, a, he's a man with one foot in civility and one foot in the outlaw world. Josh mm -hmm. Pratt's a reformed motorcycle, motorcycle hoodlum who went to prison and found God in prison and came out and, and decided to turn his life around. Uh, and he's a culmination of so many things. So one thing he's, he's not is a smart ass. Josh Brad is a very modest, self-effacing person who rarely speaks, but when he does speak, he tries to make it count. Uh, at, when he gets out of prison, the only work he can get is delivering, delivering summons for sleazy lawyers. <laughs> uh, but people come to him with their problems because he knows how to get things done. And by that, I mean, he knows how and when to step outside the law mm -hmm. when all other avenues have been exhausted. Yeah, uh, that's a great description. I was kind of curious, you know, when I was at, in my 20s and so in college, I wrote a couple of short stories and I thought that might be, might be my path and it just certainly wasn't. And one of the reasons why I feel like I hadn't lived life long enough 
Do you think the fact that it maybe took a while to kind of, I guess, unlock the puzzle that is the novel in general, do you feel like that maybe gave you a benefit that your first few novels have a wisdom to them that maybe a 20-something for all of his or her talents just can't match? Oh, I agree with that. And John Brain, who wrote Room at the Top, wrote a book about writing your novel. And he said that no one should uh, attempt to write a novel before they're at least 40 years old because they simply don't have the life experience. Now, there are exceptions to this, uh, like uh, Carson uh, McCullers, who wrote The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I mm. think she was 24 years old. Uh, uh, Richard Price wrote The Wanderers when he was in his 20s. Uh, and William Styron, uh, his first book he wrote when he was in 20s. Uh, these are people with natural talent, but, yeah. but they're anomalies. Most writers are made. They're not born. Mm-hmm. I was I was born a writer, but then I learned I had to learn how to make myself a writer. I think there are some old souls out there who are pretty darn young, but I agree. It, it, there's something there's something about living life, and, and I, I could even see in reading your work some of the psychology that in, in, in that is part and parcel of these characters where – I'm thinking a younger writer just might not have that grasp, and they might be going for something superficially interesting, but there's the, the levels you need for that kind of character just aren't there. Uh, we, to, uh, give us a little glimpse of your day-to-day life as far as being a writer. Is it up by dawn, writing for four hours? <laughs> I, I, I always love the creative stories behind this because I, I, I suspect everyone has their own little unique path that they follow. Yeah, you know, I've been getting up at the crack of dawn and hitting the typewriter all my life. Ever since I started work in Boston uh, 40 years ago, so it's a habit to me. Of course, now I have to contend with Facebook, which kills about an hour. But but I I feel guilty about it, so I always have my projects open on the bottom, and I always say, okay, enough of this. Let's do some work, (laughs) and I I immediately go to one of the projects I'm working on, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and I have some rules about this. I I try to make each chapter between 1,000 and 1,400 words. Uh, and when I sit down to write a chapter, I'm not done until I get those thousand words. And, and the words can't be filler. Everything has to advance the story. Mm-hmm. Well, what is story? It's a dynamic narrative that involves a character uh, with whom the reader identifies in a series of, of, of changing situations where you get caught up with the fate of the character. But it's it's not just his personality. It's not just the plot. It's not just the setting. It's not just the language. It's all these things working in concert. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, bump into younger writers, aspiring writers at Comic-Cons or different events? And if you do, do they ask for your advice about this field? Because I, I would think that you'd, you'd be the kind of person I'd want to talk to if I was embarking on this kind of a career. Oh, yeah, all the time. And, and occasionally I offer a course on comic book writing. And uh, you mentioned the elevator pitch. Well, the first lesson of my course is what is your story about? And when people ask you that, you have to be ready. You can't ham and haw. Now, it can be something as simple as Nazi biker zombies, which refers to my novel Helmet Head. And for a certain demographic, that's all you need. Nazi biker zombies. I'm in. Yeah, yeah. But. But for something uh, more uh, elaborate or, or uh, uh, complicated, you have to have as much as a paragraph, but you've got to be able to get it across in a paragraph. Then after the paragraph, then comes the outline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the outline uh, isn't just a, a guide for you to follow and write and know. The outline is an entertainment statement to be read by others and entertained. You've got to be able to hand that outline to anyone and have them read it and say, yeah, where's the book? Mm-hmm. 
When you think about the work you've done, you've kind of done comic books, you've done science fiction, detective stories, you kind of bounce through a lot of genres. Is there one type of story that either you just won't go near or you're really itching to do, but you haven't done yet? Well, I'm a, you know, I'd love to write some science fiction or fantasy and get in on that market, but for the life of me, no, no ideas will come. I just, especially fantasy, I look at that stuff and, I, and some of those world and the world building and, and I think, man, you know, I just, my mind doesn't work that way. I'm at a place where I have to believe in a story utterly. I have to believe it could happen. And of course, that does not rule out well-written fantasy and science fiction. It's just that I have a difficulty concocting that. I feel much more comfortable in the real world, the world in which we live, describing mm-hmm. that world. When you th- when you, I don't think this happens often with you, but if the well runs dry or you're just having a morning where you just can't think of anything creative or whatever reason, whatever kind of cliche you want to throw in there, are there things that you do that kind of um, uh, prime the pump that kind of get you going again, either activities or thoughts or going yes. for a walk or what, what's your, what's your Kickstarter? Uh, well, oh, you know, all right. When I run into a wall and that means I don't know what happens next, mm-hmm. I, I retreat from the typewriter I go to my room, I open a, uh, a notepad and a pen, and I start writing down anything that could possibly happen. Uh, and it doesn't have to even make sense. It can be ridiculous. But but if you start writing that stuff sooner or later, you'll see a path forward. Every time mm-hmm. I do that, I see the path forward. I back away from the computer. I stop typing, and I write in longhand. Mm-hmm. I take my time like I'm keeping a journal. Gotcha. Well, I know you've got a bunch of new biker stories coming very soon, and we'll have a, a lot to enjoy over the coming months. But anything other, any other long-term projects you could tease, something you maybe just started or just kind of getting uh, sinking your teeth into? Well, I'm almost done with my Florida Man novel. Now, this is really different it's, because uh, it's not a thriller, but it's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it's what is it about? Gary Dubas having a bad day. There's a snake in his toilet, a rabid raccoon in the yard, and his girl Crystal's in jail for getting naked at a waffle hut and licking the manager. (laughs) So Gary sets off with his best friend Floyd to sell his prized Barry Bonds rookie card to raise the $500 for bail. But things get out of hand. (laughs) Now, now anybody who's followed the news in the past year knows what Florida man is. (laughs) Uh, And, 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 you know, and and as I say, I don't choose my stories. My stories choose me. Mm -hmm. And after I had read about the 25th Florida man story, uh, they all go like this. Florida man defecates on traffic while clinging to light pole. (laughs) Florida man arrested for trying to have sex with alligator. I mean, these are two stories, by the way. And it's, (laughs) And if you go, if you Google Florida Man, put in your birthday, you'll get your very own Florida Man story. <laughs> so I, I, it cried out to me for treatment for Florida Man. So I decided to write that novel. Uh, and it's it's not, it's both what you think and it's not what you think. Because I'm not sneering at the roofs. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, my Gary Duba is a very sympathetic character. And in, in many ways, he's the most honorable character in the book. And once you read it, you'll understand Gotcha. Oh, one quick note. Uh, Adam Carolla used to do a, a little comic bit called Germany or Florida, and they'd read a kind of a wacky headline about someone yeah. behaving in a u- unique way. And yeah. he'd say, did it happen in Germany or Florida? It was very funny. But uh, hey, before that to go, uh, one book that you gave me, I didn't get a chance to crack it yet, is Disco, which seems very un-Mike Barron-esque, but I, I kind of love that part of it. So uh, share a little bit about that for our readers who maybe want something a little kinder, a little gentler, but want that Mike Barron imagination all the same. 
All right, Disco is about a boy who races a mongrel pup to be world disc dog champion. Uh, it's a wholesome tale for the whole family. I know that sounds strange coming from me, but it, it, it happened because my lovely wife, Anne, who's very supportive of everything I do, I said, hey, Anne, Anne, why don't you read one of my novels? She says, I can't read any of your novels. They're too horrible. Why don't you write something I can read? Well, I've been thinking about Disco for 20 years, and I said, all right, damn it, now it's time. <laughs> so, I, so I wrote it, and I'm very pleased with the results. What, what does she think of it? She loved it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Well, uh, well, Mike, thank you for joining the HeadCast. Of course, you can take out Biker right now, the Josh Pratt book, and there's more Josh Pratt adventures coming very soon. By year's end, you'll get a whole bunch of them. You can also read his latest comic book adventures, Offworlder. You can go to Indiegogo.com for more information and also some really cool images there. I, I'm a recovering art major, and I love some of the images that he's done, uh, his colleagues have done with that particular title. If you want to find out more of sort of the overall work that Mike has got going, bloodyredbaron.net is his website, but just go to amazon.com and punch his name in. You're going to find a whole bunch of results and it'll keep you busy for quite some time. Mike, keep on writing, keep up the great work. And uh, if I ever write a great American novel, I want you to summarize it for me. Thank you, Christian. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. This episode is sponsored by schwanns.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm. Good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details.